So I haven't been to Sandy for, I was trying to work it out, something like 33 years. Wow. Like, I think this was the first RSPB reserve I came to and knew that it was like a reserve and knew that, that nature existed. <laughs> but as a, as a single uh, digit aged individual, so it's quite nice to come back. It's got so many different bits. So you've got the, the arts and crafts gardens, which mm-hmm. suit many people. But then you've got... Do they suit like, you? I, I like them. I really do. It's, I'm a bit of a gardener at heart. Uh-huh. So um, I like wildlife gardening. And it's kind of been my happy place. As long as there's wildlife there. Then. How does arts and craft gardening sit with wildlife gardening? So it's all Are we organic. talking arts and crafts movement? Or are we talking... Kind of design. People are making things out of... More the, the movement and the design. Okay. So the person who originally created it was very arts and crafts. But we've made it organic, peat-free, and bringing as much wildlife as we can into the garden. As I pulled up to the main lodge, the first thing I saw was a squirrel raiding a bird feeder. <laughs> of course, and I all was wildlife like, is welcome. How can you come to the head <laughs> office of the RSPB and there's a squirrel there doing its thing? There are so many bird feeders, no one's going to go hungry. <laughs> Right, as you can hear this month on Trees A Crowd, I, your host David Oakes, have headed to Sandy in Bedfordshire for a walk around the nature reserve that encompasses the headquarters of Europe's largest wildlife conservation charity, our very own Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Keeping me company, you've already heard her voice, is a woman who was until recently the director for RSPB England, and now sits upon the organization's lofty executive board. From here, she ensures that the RSPB makes the biggest possible difference, both for nature and for as diverse a group of mammalian bipeds as possible. Now, last month alone saw the launch of both the People's Plan for Nature and the premiere of the BBC's Wild Isles series, both of which are brilliant, both of which are co-produced by the RSPB, and both of which are covered with this woman's fingerprints. So. Without further ado, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Emma Marsh. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. You can choose. We can either mm-hmm. start with... The big question or the small question? Oh, let's go big question. Okay, wow, okay. Is the RSPB a feminist movement? Yes, the RSPB is most definitely a feminist movement. We were started by women. Mm-hmm. So if you think way back, 1889, Emily Williamson completely decided to take on the establishment against the plumage trade and that would have been massive for a woman to have done so particularly at a time when didn't even have the vote but we were standing up to say enough is enough actually it went through a time where there weren't many women in charge shall we say but I more recently you know we have so many more women on our trustees so Uh many more women on our executive board so many more women who are coming up through the ranks of which and you are one. Of which I am one. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm very proud to be. It's so important that we bring young women through the system to make sure they have as much access to nature and can define nature and how it should be enjoyed as possible. 
Going back to 1899, it was, I think I'm right in saying it's Emily, Eliza and Etta. Etta. Yes. So it's all the E's, and you as an Emma, that probably fits in quite Perfect, nicely. Perfect, isn't it? But they, it wasn't that there wasn't a, a bird-focused organisation at the time. No, there was um, a bird union at the time, but they wouldn't let women in. Do we know why not? Just because women didn't have the vote, didn't have intellectual capacity? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we just weren't the type of people that they felt should be in that union, and they didn't want to take on the fight against the plumage trade. So it took Emily, Etta and Eliza to actually do so. So I think it's the British Ornithological Union was yep, the male-dominated one. And were they just interested in exploring, discovering, getting an egg, blowing it, sticking feathers on a pinball? Yep, the next sighting, the sure. next rare bird. Got to tick off all the boxes <laughs> Completely, completely. Whereas Emily, Eliza and Etta were much more about stopping species from going extinct. Uh-huh. So so many species where you'd have entire birds stuck on a woman's hat or entire wings pulled off and placed on a hat they just felt repulsed by it and couldn't see what benefit it was and so actually just wanted to make a stand what did they call themselves at the start it was the society for the protection of birds Uh or the fur feather and fin club and then they came together under the society name and then eventually got the royal charter and became the royal society Mm. And I'm right, I think I'm right in saying that half of them were from Manchester and half of them were from London. Yes. So Emily, who kind of first started it, was Didsbury. Um, I and did live in Didsbury. Did you? I was in university up there. I had the pleasure of recently going and seeing where her actual first tea party took place in the park. And it was lovely. It was really quite evocative. So they met as a sort of conservation effort, or at least to stop cruelty in the yep. fashion industry. Where do they stand in terms of, I guess, a, a worldwide sort of conservation society? Like, were there other groups trying to stop cruelty to animals, to stop persecution for resources? Yeah, absolutely. So there was the Audubon Society in America mm-hmm. and others. But they were very... So Emily and Pals were very much focused on the UK, really. Sure. And just stopping the importation of plumage coming in, but then also protecting other species. And they started the first kind of watchers, so people who would go out and look after protected species and make Mm -hmm. sure people didn't come and steal the eggs. So, um, yeah, really into that protection I'm imagining a load of Victorian women up in bird (laughs) hides shouting very loudly at naughty men with pith helmets and nets. I so wish that was the case. (laughs) I think they hired men to do it, but I wish that was definitely the case. (laughs) Why do you think it's birds? If it's Audubon and it's the fur and feathers slash what was to become the RSPB, mm-hmm. why, why are birds the gateway drug to conservation? <laughs> they are just so beautiful and they're right in our backyards. So even in the middle of a city, you'll see a starling, hopefully, mm-hmm. even though their numbers are plummeting, and you'll see a little wren and they're just, they're tiny, but they're so full of life. When you think of wren, it's about the, the weight of a one-pound coin, and then its voice, in compared to its size, is about ten times the power of a crowing cockerel. It's just, they're just balls of utter joy. And I just, yeah, you can't but be delighted with them, whether it's just in your garden or if you're out in a beautiful reserve like this and seeing something quite rare. So if the ratio of mass to volume is so great for the wren... Why have you chosen the Avocet as <laughs> the uh, logo for the RSPB? Oh, the Avocet is very close to our hearts because it was, it went extinct in the UK. Did it? And we took... I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, and then we took on Minsmere, RSPB Minsmere, uh-huh. our flagship, 
and avocets began to breed there successfully and so it just felt it was one of our first conservation successes so therefore it had to become our logo and when you just you suddenly come across them just standing there and you're like how on earth do I have the privilege of looking at this beautiful bird in the UK you imagine they should be kind of exotics that you only see abroad Mm -hmm. a bit like a curlew I always find that bonkers okay so you who are you (laughs) that's a massive question (laughs) who are any of us gosh where do you want me to start let's start at the very beginning am I right in saying that you grew up on a farm I did yes so I grew up on a farm in South Warwickshire Mm -hmm. so my dad was a farm worker and we had an agricultural cottage which we lived in just the fields were my playground and I know lots of people say that but they really were I would spend my days building dens and kind of hedges and just sit there and feel utterly peaceful yeah I was so lucky to just be able to explore all those fields was wildlife a part of that or was it more countryside because they're not entirely the same thing firstly I would say it was countryside in the sense of space Uh so I'm an introvert and I get my energy from being in my own head and so that sense of space and being alone was really powerful but the more time I spent just sat or just walking wildlife came into its own just a hair just ran through into that bracken that bracken yeah 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 Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. Enough about you. But that's okay. More about the wildlife. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go on. Yeah, just uh, the wildlife started taking over. So things such as the lapwing, or as my dad would have called it, the peewit, Mm -hmm. just, again, bonkers birds that you don't expect. And at that point, when I, gosh, I must have been around 10, there were hundreds of them in the back fields. Mm -hmm. Now, none, absolutely none in those fields. But, yeah, it was a real privilege to have that ability was it birds was it always birds? it was a mix okay so i'm not a twitcher i'm not um a birder i adore birds but it's all wildlife so i'm as excited by a hare as i am from a (laughs) wren (laughs) is it the biodiversical intertwining of everything or is it just just to watch the different creatures is it the individuals within a landscape or is it the way they interrelate or can you separate them for me it's something where it probably doesn't make much logical sense but it's a feeling so it's spiritual but in a very non-religious sense are you religious no brought up to be religious but no longer religious it just feels right i feel being in nature is just one of those most peaceful states everything feels right in the world when nature's right as soon as you start getting a schism happening where you mm-hmm. see nature being ripped apart, that hurts physically. Would you say it's meditative? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I couldn't imagine meditating in a room in a house, but actually being outside, that really, really works. When is nature right? What do you mean by that? When they have the habitat and the food and the shelter that they need, all feels peaceful and everything's just flitting around kind of ignoring me that's when it feels best so one of the things that i've been finding very interesting is whether we're creating habitats for creatures that exist at the moment or whether or not we should think about creating habitats for creatures that will call this place home next is the rspb and you as part of the rspb Mm -hmm. are you trying to manifest nature reserves for the bee eaters and for those migrants that might come in as it gets warmer and warmer because you're blessed with a a group of animals that can move very quickly Mm. and adapt very fast. 
it's a both. So there will be places where we're protecting species that are at absolute risk of extinction and really on the brink. For example, we have the curlew. It is absolutely on the brink across all parts of the UK and in places kind of gone too far that it won't survive. So we're making sure across our landscapes that we're doing research to find out what will make the difference. Is it habitat? Is it food? So really trying to make sure that we don't lose that wonderful species from the UK. But also we're thinking about new habitats, new places for nature and new places for people to enjoy nature as well. So it's a real diverse mix depending on the place, depending on the climate, because some places just right in the south of England won't be able to support the species they could years ago. Mm -hmm. So we have to adapt ourselves. Do you think it's integral to the process to have human beings being able to enjoy it or like how many of your current reserves are completely sealed off and purely for the for the four-legged and two-winged and <laughs> six-legged and so majority of our sites are open sure. to uh, the public a f- small number are protected for various reasons so it could be the most delicate species who are on the brink um, or it could be something to do with particular rights around that place but generally if we can open it up we will Mm -hmm. because if people don't have access to nature if they don't feel immersed in it how on earth are they ever going to want to save it sure i'm firmly on access for everyone but there are some really kind of special places that we need to make sure that nature kind of are the privileged ones and get that space just for themselves such as let's take for example snettisham Mm -hmm. so beautiful beach in norfolk at certain points in the year we need to rope off bits of the beach to make sure that the birds that are breeding actually on the sand aren't disturbed. Because if they're disturbed, they'll just abandon the nest. Plovers, for example. Really making sure that they've got that safe space, keeping dogs away from them because that's a really big disturbance. But that's only at a certain time of year. And then once they've gone, open that space back up for people. You talk about making access for human beings and mm-hmm. as a feminist organisation as we've mm-hmm. already discussed do you know the demographic split of people of colour or women to male mm-hmm. or what people visit RSPP nature reserves and so, is it good enough and how do we diversify it? So it's changing and mm-hmm. changing quite rapidly historically I would have said we were quite a traditional male, white traditional birders Which is ironic considering where it started isn't indeed, it? Indeed, indeed and you know, those members are so important to us um, and continue to be and will always be. But we want to make sure that everyone has that access. Sure. So we seeing many more women who are joining us. We do special events. So, for example, nighttime walks just for women. So rarely, as a woman, can you enjoy a nighttime walk and feel safe. So we put special walks on so that you can enjoy the splendour of one of our nature reserves at night and hear those amazing sounds and and just be immersed in it. And we know we've got a long way to go in terms of wider demographics. Mm -hmm. So we know that our own staff and our visitors are not diverse enough. We need to represent the UK. We need to be much more diverse and inclusive. But we are on a really, really important drive at the moment to change ourselves to Mm -hmm. change the way we work to change the way we kind of reflect the UK to make sure that we are seen as a place that people want to be they see themselves in us and I'm really proud of the work we've done so far 
but it's definitely not done yet. We've sure. got a long way to go. So going back to your farm field and your dens, yes. what happens next? So it was very clear from my parents that they didn't ever want me or my uh, brother or sister to go into farming. If you don't own the land, it's impossible. You're just working for much. other people, basically. Exactly. Were they from farming stock themselves? My dad, yes. My mum, not so much. She, she came from uh, brick workers okay. down from London. Um, would you say you're working class then? I would. Rural working class. Rural working class. Yeah. Yeah. And they were very much of the view that that wasn't a life that could be sustainable and farm workers were losing many of their rights, for example, so agricultural wages board going, etc. So they really wanted me to be the first member of the family to go to university, so I took up my other love, which was politics. So I ended up going to uh, Kiel University in the Midlands, big rural campus, there were lots of trees, big woodland, um, and I studied international relations. Are there any obvious parallels between the world of politics and the world of birds? <laughs> many, 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 many. Lots of Gosh. male members flapping around <laughs> with their big bottom feathers on display. Completely. No Fight for survival. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best bits actually within uh, the international relations degree was I studied the international relations of the environment, okay. which was just just so fascinating and many people would find it dull but it was all around international law and what works what doesn't the threats and actually right now there are so many threats sure. to the laws that protect nature in the uk so it's standing me in quite good stead Has amazingly it got worse since you're at university or are we getting better so i would say many more commitments many more promises mm -hmm. i wouldn't say actions got any better at all to be honest sure. i think we are definitely at risk from a reliance on targets and promises that never get delivered. We're talking a few days after the environmental impact plan yes. has just come out, which yeah. is basically the how we're going to put the environmental act yeah. into, which was two years ago. <laughs> Indeed. So every two years, it feels like we're going to get some documentation coming out of government and Whitehall, which tells us how exactly they plan to implement the last bit of paper which was just a bit of paper that said that they wanted to implement some things which was just a document that said that they wanted to implement the things from before because <laughs> I, I remember when the environment act came through and it was amazing and we were the first country to ever put a date yep. down to say we're going to do some environmental action and in itself it was the first bit of an environmental policy for 20 years yeah 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 and so suddenly this eip comes out and it doesn't really say how we're going to do any of it and we've waited two years for that do yep. you see it as bleakly as I see it, or as someone who's got their finger more on the pulse than I do, and is within the system, I guess, of change and trying to talk to government daily? I see there's hope. There are some really committed politicians who are desperately trying their best, from all parties, to do the right thing. So I think the Conservative Environment Network that has a really good group, people who are really committed. We've got people like Caroline Lucas, uh -huh. who is great. We've got a new group starting up in the Labour Party looking at all of this. So there are really good people thinking about it. It's just so frustrating that action isn't happening sure. on the ground and we need action more than words now. I was talking to Chris Packham, who I think is your vice president. He's one of our vice presidents, yes. And he was saying how he believes there's a percentage swell you need. You need about 25% to be in favour of something and the rest will follow suit. Do you think that's the case in politics? 
or do you think your numbers need to be much higher? I think it depends. I think it's a combination. So for me, it's getting enough politicians and then enough members of the public to really care and to shout about it. So we've been involved with WWF and uh, National Trust to help create a People's Assembly. So 100 people from across the UK, reflecting the demographics of the UK, coming together and independently saying what plan they want for nature in the UK. They put that plan out there and encourage the rest of public to join them. And if we can create that, so it's a people's plan for nature, that gets momentum. They hold us as NGOs to account, they hold governments, they hold businesses to account to do their bit. I think that has real legs. Sure. Because the nature crisis affects every single person. It's an existential problem. So we need every single person to have a say. So I think it's, it's a combination. We can have all of the politicians on side, but if the public don't want it, it won't sure. work, and vice versa. So yeah, the more we can do to get the two coming together, the better. And then we're going to ask the governments of the UK to respond. We're going to ask businesses to respond, and we will respond ourselves as well. Do you think we're going to be better off under a Labour government in terms of the environment and wildlife? From where I sit, it doesn't seem like it's anywhere near the top of their agenda at the moment. I don't think it's near the top of enough parties' agendas. Sure. I think climate and nature. Climate has risen, but then they're forgetting about the biodiversity crisis. And if we don't fix that, then the climate crisis will never be resolved. So I want to see more from them all, to be honest. All the governments of the UK and really putting up some, some quite dramatic and powerful policies to bring nature back from the brink. So Keele University, you're there yes. studying politics, but do you keep up any kind of interest in the environment or is it very definitely books and conference halls? And <laughs> so um, this first year you had to do a subsidiary course mm -hmm. and it had to be something that was opposite to whatever you were doing. So if you were doing science, you had to do an arts and if you're doing arts, you had sure. to do science. So I did environmental science. So that kept my hand in, which was brilliant. And it was just for a year, but it was really, really interesting. I really liked that. And then I would spend quite a lot of time kind of roaming the woodlands. So Kiel is a rural campus. It's got, I think it's about, probably going to get this wrong, but about 500 acres of land. And so really beautiful old woods, real ancient trees. So I'd spend quite a lot of time there on my own or with friends. It's a great place to get away from the stresses of uni. I think I look back at university now and I think I used alcohol too often as a way to get away from the stress of university, which being right next to the Peak District was probably a, a wasted opportunity. Um, so you got your undergraduate degree. Yes. What happened then? So no one had actually told me where to go after that. No one ever I does? Was, no, I was really lost. Go to university, get a proper job. That's yeah. what I was told. And there's this kind of feeling that well, if you go to university, you get a good degree, people will definitely want you. And I was just so lost. I had no idea. One of the default ones was going to the civil service. Mm -hmm. But I failed the civil service entry exams and actually probably quite glad now that I did. So I went on a bit of a random career move over the next few years. So I worked for the Metropolitan Police for a couple of years okay. um, as a civilian, which was fascinating, but it wasn't for me. And then I moved over to work in the commercial sector. So in telecoms, working actually back with emergency services to put computers and mobile data into their vehicles. Fascinating, but again, mm -hmm. quite random. And then I took a year out because I knew that I was feeling so disconnected from nature 
and from the things that really mattered to me and I couldn't see a way from the career I was in into anything else without doing something quite radical so sold the flat went and volunteered at HDRA which is now Garden Organic did time volunteering um, out with conservation organizations so at Garden Organic it was doing a box scheme so it was growing organic food for people with others there was quite a lot of scrub bashing and clearance sure um, I worked on vineyard for a short time. Oh, cool. So it was just really trying to get so much experience and make sure that this move would be right for me and kind of it cemented the fact that I wanted to be in the environmental conservation well, sector. It sounds like you sort of almost went back into your farming. <laughs> yeah. And I would have loved to have basically done horticulture and done it on a wildlife-friendly basis. But my word, it's hard to get into that. Again, if you don't have the land, sure. the cost of renting, of yeah, it's astronomical. So, well, how, like in the same way as we're talking about making the nature space accessible mm. to people, how do you make the horticultural space? Well, I think across horticulture and farming, we need to make space for people who can take up tenancies safely, securely, if they don't own the land. Otherwise, it just becomes a career for those who have that privilege from birth. But those who own the land are never going to give up? Some do, some have. In the past, I mean, some councils still do have farm tenancies. Mm-hmm. A lot have disappeared, sadly. But those that still exist are fair rates for tenancies, which then support young farmers to go into farming. And if we can make sure that things such as elms, so uh, farming subsidies. The environmental land management scheme. Indeed, well done. Uh, if we can make sure they reward farmers doing good for, the na- for nature and the environment, then that would help future farmers and How future horticulturalists. How is Elms faring? Because there was talk relatively recently of it being put on the EU bill bonfire and being got rid of. Yes, we were really worried late last year that it was just going to be completely watered down. It's not so bad. We've got hope. There are some good things in there. keep coming back to hope. That's a repeat hope theme of a lot me. of this. Hope I think if... There's if you're a, a conservationist and you don't have hope, it's quite bleak. There's a sign in the reception I saw whilst I was waiting for you to come down that says hope is a thing with feathers. And it keeps us going. Every knockback we get, we kind of dust ourselves off and get back out fighting. Do you have to be intrinsically optimistic to work in the charitable NGO conservation environmental world? You don't have to be, but it really does help. <laughs> it's... If you, don't, if you don't have that optimism, it can feel really quite tough because you see so much nature disappearing on a daily basis, whether you see it at the policy level or it's kind of in your own kind of community. You're fighting all the time against developments which are going to be really damaging for mm-hmm. nature. Yeah, it can, it can weigh heavy, but the optimism and our belief that we can win this for nature that keeps us going if you could click your fingers right now and enact one change Mm -hmm. what would you do that's amazing i would make sure that all the legislation there is is actually delivered and monitored and robustly enforced we're talking environmental legislation or all legislation environmental legislation would that mean cancelling legislation that is anti-environment too it would indeed. Because yes. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> yeah. so much, you know, so many of our protected places, they're not robustly monitored. It's not enforced. No. And so even the places that we deem in the UK to be the most special for wildlife, we're still not protecting. And that's just mad. 
I think between the RSPB and Wild Justice, you've put a bounty <laughs> on someone's head who recently shot illegally. Not that there's a legal reason to shoot an osprey, but shot five no. ospreys mm -hmm. seemingly for sport and fun. How do you feel about putting a bounty on someone's head for information? I mean, I think it's very cool and old-fashioned. I mean, I haven't ever thought of it in that <laughs> way. <laughs> is it £10,000 for information to, yes. to, to find the guy? Or guys? Or girls. We don't know who it is. Feminist organisation after all. Don't exactly. Class gender aspersions. We don't do it lightly. Uh -huh. Have you had any leads? Police investigations. We can never ever say anything. Just the persecution of wildlife. You know, yeah. We have some pretty good legislation in this country to stop wildlife crimes. And yet people get away with the worst things. It makes me so angry that people could do that. What's the biggest wildlife crime that you have committed? Gosh! Because I, I was reading Chris's autobiography, or his memoirs mm. of his childhood, and there's a moment where he he assists in snaring a fox and then is forced to kill the fox in quite an awful way. Mm -hmm. It's a harrowing yes. chapter. It's quite amazing to consider someone who's so revered as an environmentalist and conservationist to then recount a time where he as a child murdered a fox. What's the worst thing you've yeah, done? Yeah, nothing like that. So I would have been the person putting a stick in the snare to stop anything from happening. Uh -huh. <laughs> Probably when I didn't know enough about breeding habits of birds and I was got my first garden mm -hmm. and it sounds really tame but it is pretty awful actually cutting a hedge right in the middle of the breeding season and it's bad enough cutting a hedge tiny so that you don't actually have enough habitat for birds mm -hmm. but actually doing it in breeding season is awful I learnt a very big lesson very quickly and now I don't stop planting hedges. And Did someone them. berate you for doing it <laughs> yes. or was it you just noticing what changed? No, my neighbour berated me and I felt so embarrassed. But it's a good lesson. So you're you're back in farming sort right. of. You're 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 in vineyards and you're yes. after that year out of experimenting yeah. back with nature again, where do you go? I tried so hard to get into conservation but I couldn't couldn't find a way in. Why is it so over competitive? And I think if it is so widely sought after, why is it not having greater impact? There is a bit of a, a thing where if you haven't got that conservation background running through your kind of childhood, you know, I was never a member of a wildlife charity. We didn't, couldn't afford to join charities. Then you don't have that experience on your CV and you're competing with people that do, people who do internships, for example. I would suggest that probably most people who are members of what was the Young Ornithologist Club or likewise were probably from middle class or upper class Indeed. backgrounds. Is there an argument in making access to wildlife groups free to members of underrepresented groups? We completely have to find a way to do that, yes. Uh -huh. A real ambition of mine is to make sure that access is much more open and we stop putting barriers in the way of people, whether it's race or class. It has to be there for everyone. And, you know, in my case, couldn't get through the door. So I went to work for another charity called the Waste and Resources Action Programme. Mm -hmm. So waste and recycling. So I had no background in that either. Unsurprising that people weren't sort of trying to clamber over each other to get into <laughs> to waste no, materials. Exactly. Although once you go into it, you will never, ever go on holiday without taking a photo of a waste bin. <laughs> Honestly. Please expand that thought. <laughs> Anyone who works in waste and recycling you come across the most amazing innovative systems when you go on holiday and you will share them with colleagues. Like we're we talking like bins with solar panels and... Bins that are buried in the pavement. Bins which just are able to weigh the recycling so that it's, you can capture all of that information and then give the money back to the community. 
Honestly, there are some amazing things. Have we got the worst bins of all developed countries? Not the worst. Who's got the worst? Morning. Good morning. morning. Oh, gosh. Name I've been sure. too far out of it now. Who's got the best bins? Who had the best bins back in the day? Back in the day, Italy was pretty good. Well done, Italy. Yeah. So I worked on uh, recycling to start with, on the Recycle Now campaign. Uh-huh. And then we got funding from the government to look at tackling consumer food waste and food waste in uh, retailers and producers and across the whole system. And so I spent many years then working with some amazing colleagues on tackling food waste in the system. So I was kind of head of the Love Food Hate Waste campaign for a bit, working with my colleagues who did all of the data and working with people like Tesco to try and make them make changes to their products and packaging. Mm -hmm. And we made progress. We were able to reduce the amount of food that people threw away from their homes. We got some supermarkets to actually start disclosing how much waste they were producing and it was really fascinating but the thing that the thing that really got to me was that and everyone uses Wales as an example but the amount of food we would throw away in the UK would take the size of Wales to grow and that is the amount we were just throwing away for no good reason and it just took me back to the farming and we're talking Space about nature. just food waste here. We're just not food talking waste. about packaging or anything no, like that. Food just waste. food waste. That's insane. Completely insane. So if you think if we didn't throw that away, how much more space would we have for nature and to produce food? I find it's just so sad. And then I saw a role come up at RSPB, which was for regional director in the Midlands. Mm-hmm. And it would enable me to get back to working closely with nature I could work with an incredible team across uh, nature reserves across the Midlands, also campaigning. Too good to be true. They gave me a go and, yeah, it felt like coming home. And you've since then been the head of RSPB England. Yep. And you're now on the executive committee. Yes. How many of the people you do you work with came through similar routes of not getting instant access to conservation? And how many of them went through the moor? Uh, middle-class member of the YOC direction? When I first joined back in 2016, it was rare to come across anyone that came from outside of that world. There were a few um, and would kind of cling to each other. But now, so many more, so many more people from such diverse backgrounds. It's really exciting, actually. Does it Um, make decision-making more dynamic? It does. So it makes it much more interesting as well. The, The group think isn't there. So we'll challenge each other. We will will think through how various decisions would impact all parts of society. And I think it makes us such a better organisation. Are you the biggest conservation organisation in Europe, I read? Is that true? We are, yes. Why is the RSPB the biggest conservation organisation in Europe? I think because we work across all four countries of the UK and we work on all bits of what is known as the conservation toolkit. So we work on policy, so influencing all four governments, influencing local government. We do direct conservation on nature reserves where nature has to be protected. So we've got over 200 nature reserves across the UK. We work off those nature reserves, so we'll work with partners, with landowners, with farmers to do landscape scale conservation. Mm -hmm. So taking a whole moorland, for example, and joining up all the various landowners to create a real habitat for nature. We do campaigning, we'll fight 
in kind of the public with the public to make sure that the public's voice is heard. Sure. We do conservation science. So we're working with universities and scientists from around the world. And then we're also doing international conservation, which most people don't even know mm -hmm. that we do. So we're working at the moment in Kazakhstan um, across the Kazakhstan steep and protecting the Sega antelope, which is another bonkers animal. It's got the most huge nose. And Why is the RSPB in Kazakhstan <laughs> looking after antelopes? So we work with the local bird life <laughs> partner. Okay. So we're kind of the largest bird life partner. There uh -huh. are bird life partners across the world. Bird life is a big international conglomerate. Did yes. it start in the 90s? Well, we joined in the 90s. Sure. So actually it was its 100th year anniversary last year. that long? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And everyone came together from all around the world to celebrate and look to the future. So we work with those partners to protect habitats. So we're not just birds. We look at all habitat because if you don't do the habitat, the birds won't survive. Sure. And then the BirdLife Partner and local conservation charities wanted to protect the Sega antelope. And so we've been working with them. So it's gone up from 40,000 Sega antelope just a few years ago to over 1.3 million now. The Kazakh government, as a result of the importance of that whole landscape, has now designated, I think it's just over 650,000 hectares, which blows my mind. Uh -huh. That's now protected for nature. That is the kind of scale of conservation that changes the world. Sure. And that's one of the reasons we're so big, because we're not about just changing our backyards, we're about changing the world. Do all of these world-changing big projects, like in Kazakhstan, or even... I know, areas like the Chernobyl fallout zone, mm -hmm. which is the most amazing rewilding, unintentional rewilding yes. exercise the world has ever seen. Is it always reliant upon developing countries or underdeveloped countries to give their space over to make the first world look good and kind? For me, it's about what can we do to help those communities? I think it's really important that we save nature everywhere. Sure. There's just more of it in places where yes. we haven't built so many There's, buildings. Exactly. And the UK is so nature depleted so built on and we need to protect as much space as we can in the uk and we will do our best to do so but there are some spaces that are pretty much untouched in the world and we must do anything we can to help those communities to protect them okay what's the best thing about your garden the best thing about my garden would be this massive copper beech oh, it must lovely. be well over 100 years old and it's the reason i bought the house my husband bought it for the house I just wanted the tree. <laughs> um, when we saw it, the, uh, the estate agent was raving about the fact it didn't have a tree protection order. So we could chop you it down. You can cut it down if you want. And I was like, I have to buy this because I want to protect it. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's just magical. Spring, lying on the grass, looking up into the canopy. There is nothing, nothing better. There was, hopefully she doesn't listen to my podcast, the woman who lived beneath me uh, in London moved in in the winter and we've got this beautiful must be 400 500 year old oak tree in oh, the garden my it's stunning we live right on the edge of crystal palace park so it used to be an arboretum wow, so yeah. there was lots of old old tree specimens there she moved in in the winter and loved the tree and she was in the basement flat but when obviously the spring and summer came and the foliage came out she was like i want to be able to see the sunshine during the summertime I think we should prune this tree back. <laughs> We're like, no, it's hundreds of years exactly. old. You've lived here for six months. I think it has a squatter's rights by now. Completely. So there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Mm -hmm. 
The first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, carbon footprint be damned, okay. where would it be? I'm going to say in the fields around my house in North Warwickshire, mm-hmm. because there's just a real sense of peace there and the wildlife is clinging on. Um, it's a little bit, a bit of green belt, but quite uh, neglected. So actually the nature's thriving. And I'm just really protective of UK nature. Mm-hmm. So it's my happy place, so it would have to be there. It's interesting. There are two kinds of people I interview on the podcast. There are those that go for their backyard or the farm they grew up mm-hmm. on or the forest that their grandmother took them to when they were 12 or whatever it is. And there are those that say, no, South American cloud <laughs> rainforest. Yeah, mine wasn't very exotic. But, <laughs> but oh, no, but sorry. that's the point is that you, I, I deliberately meet all kinds of people on this and they may come from different outlooks. Some might be adventurous explorers and people who do want to counterfall the birds but also conserve them and those that yes. don't need to to own or possess in, yes. in inverted commas and want to protect and release and i wouldn't go back to the farm i grew up on because there's just no nature left it's really sad because of how your father farmed it no um, well my dad used to kind of feel as distraught as i did about the way it was being farmed just very intense it's kind of what cap kind of forced on farmers but a lot of hedgerows went mm-hmm. very monocrop the fields were drained and so yeah there's, there's no lapwing left there's very few farm birds left do you think farmers are at all responsible or is it just the caps that were set on them and the targets that were forced upon them i think the vast majority of farmers love nature and they feel very much at one with nature and feel very proud of what they do I think the system has made it really difficult for them there are some farmers who are bad as there are in every kind of industry some who will knowingly do really bad practice but I meet some of the most incredible farmers people like Martin Lines who's the chair of the Nature Friendly Farmers Network who are just so powerful in what they do they're spending all their spare time to help encourage other farmers to do their best. They work with government to influence them to show what can be done. It would be nice to be able to say someone's a baddie and someone's a goodie, but actually it's quite complicated. And what we need to do is just support the farmers that really want to do the right thing. And is that through further subsidy in a different direction? Because obviously farmers get subsidised to create as much as they can. We need to subsidise them to create as much as they can in a green way. Yeah, it's, it's rewarding them for the things that, essentially, the, the when you get to the supermarket and you buy food, the price that goes back to the farmer won't reflect the fact they put all of these great, br- brilliant nature things in place. Mm-hmm. So we need to subsidise them for doing those things so that at the same time they can grow food for the UK. It is possible to do. Green labelling is starting, though. You'll often sort of buy eggs or, or whatever and it will say how many lap wings were saved as a result of you <laughs> yeah. buying those eggs rather than someone else's eggs or is that something you think people I mean I, I think that's a no-brainer thing a lot of people will be interested right now in that kind of thing yeah I think making sure we have really simple labelling that people can trust that can show where a farmer is doing the right thing for nature I think so many people would buy into that sure. and I think if the supermarkets the producers can help 
farmers as well to promote that, for example, then the cost doesn't end up going on to the consumer sure. and the farmers are rewarded for doing the right thing. Second question of the three that I ask everybody, who is your natural history hero? So my hero would probably have to be Chris Packham. Okay. So I grew up, first of all, with David Bellamy, mm -hmm. but then Terry Nutkins and Chris Packham came on TV with a really wild show. So it would have been about 86, so I'd been about 12. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was, it was amazing. They were so not like anyone else talking about nature. It was people with real accents and just getting up close and not minding getting dirty and or, yeah I just I loved it and Terry Nutkins was brilliant but Chris Packham has really remained a bit of a hero of mine. Did you have a bit of a crush on him? I'm afraid I did and I met him recently and I had to really rain, rain it in so I didn't do a fangirl on I was him. going to ask I saw yeah. a photo of you both online yes. the other day. <laughs> Did you blush like a tiny little girly girl? I blush so easily anyway. <laughs> so I had to pretend it was because I was really cold. <laughs> but yeah, what he does and how he does it and how he just, you know, from Springwatch, for example, where he can just get people who are not interested at all to sit up and take notice. Mm -hmm. I think that's an incredible skill. Final question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? might be a bit controversial but I would probably say nothing okay. in the sense that I don't think we'd have the habitat to actually support it so sure. I think it can be really dangerous to think well if I just put this species somewhere it will flourish but then it doesn't have the food or the habitat or the shelter it needs and so I just want us to protect the stuff we've got because we're doing so badly at doing that let's not worry about the other stuff What's the RSPB doing next? This year is pretty incredible, actually. We have the TV series Wild Isles going out during uh, late spring, and we are co-producers along with WWF, hmm. and Sir David um, Attenborough is Heard narrating it. Very good. It's a showcase of the beauty and the majesty of the UK's Wild Isles, and I've seen extract from it and it is one of the most powerful emotional pieces of tv i've ever seen and i'm not someone who generally watches nature documentaries but it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful and we're really hoping that people will see that see just what is at risk of being lost and then join with us join with others in the sector mm -hmm. to actually bring nature back from the brink because we have a nature crisis you know that so many people just don't realise. Speaking to the People's Assembly, who are putting together the People's Plan for Nature, many of them, when they heard from independent scientists, from farmers, from businesses, they didn't realise just how at risk nature is in the UK. And so a combination of the People's Plan for Nature being launched by the People's Assembly, a combination of the Wild Isles TV series, we're really hoping it galvanises everyone businesses governments the public to say no more enough is enough and actually we need to come together to save this because if we don't we are going to lose it yeah and what are we going to make documentaries about anymore well indeed there won't be a chance to go back and see it again that's the only sure. footage i've seen is of the starling memorations oh. with the infrared camera stunning um, that's just like yeah. otherworldly honestly so many bits are utterly otherworldly you just get lost in the beauty of what we have in the uk 
and so few people would realise it. You know, we have so many nature documentaries about nature around the world, really exotic. We've got stunning nature on our doorsteps, and most of us don't even realise. Which might be good for the long-term protection in some instances, maybe. <laughs> Indeed. But people have to see nature, feel nature, and to be in to nature. It. To, yeah, completely. Emma, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure, thank you. So, there you are. A massive thank you to Emma for giving over her morning to my microphones back in February. And an extra special additional thank you to her hope for the future, which I personally found intoxicating, so much so it makes me sound saccharine. Anyway, also a many, many thanks to Ollie at the RSPB for helping set this interview up. So thank you, Ollie. As you've heard in this interview, the RSPB, WWF and National Trust People's Plan for Nature is hopefully a huge step forward for holding our government to account should it wish to commit to green targets properly. It is brilliant and was launched just a matter of days ago and you can find a link to everything about it and indeed everything else that Emma spoke about in this interview at treesacrowd.fm. We will be back in one month's time with a bona fide rock star slash wildfowl aficionado. But until then, why not ditch the chocolate eggs this year and buy someone an RSPB membership and nurture real birds' eggs instead? For I want to wish you a very happy Easter. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.